encounters with Jesus Christ. And the last encounter we considered was the wedding at Cana, where Jesus performed his first miracle. And actually, the first 11 chapters of John is called the Book of Signs. And a miracle was a sign. Jesus didn't do a miracle for its own sake. It was in order to point people to who he is, the saviour of sinners. And we're going to look at another encounter now, not as pleasant, unfortunately, as what happened in the wedding. This is Jesus cleansing the temple. But it would be quite wrong of us to avoid the encounter uh, that those at the temple had with a very different Lord Jesus uh, to what those experienced at the wedding had. Uh, we, we tend to think, don't we, what is the children's hymn? Gentle, Jesus, he's gentle. Meek, he's definitely meek. But mild, I don't think so. He's definitely not going to be mild in the encounter that we're going to consider this morning. Now, throughout the next few weeks, there's going to be contrasts. So when Jesus was blessing the wedding at Cana, there's the contrast between the old water of purification, the Old Testament, and the new wine of what Jesus Christ is offering in the gospel. Here, this morning, the, the only two points I'll have is the contrast between the old temple and the new, that is the body of Jesus Christ, as I said to the children. And then, when we get to chapter 3, there's the contrast between the old birth and being born again, Jesus' interview with Nicodemus. And in chapter 4, there's the contrast between the old water in Jacob's well and the new water of living life. My friends, Christianity is new. We tend to forget that, don't we? Our tendency is to think of Christianity as something old. Well, it is old. It's older than time. But we sometimes as Christians give the impression that we are old-fashioned in the wrong sense. But actually, in the New Testament, Christianity was something completely new and radical. Oh, that we would see something of that in our day and age. Let's look then at Jesus cleansing the temple. I don't know how many of you have been to the land of Israel. I visited a few years ago. Jesus walks from Cana, where he went to the wedding. He walks to his hometown of Capernaum. Capernaum is a tiny place, but it's a beautiful walk from Cana along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You've got the deep blue waters of the Sea of Galilee on the one side, and then you've got Mount Hermon, and it's usually got some snow on it uh, in the background, and it's stunning scenery. If you've never been, it's well worth going. But Jesus didn't stay long in Capernaum, as we had in the reading, and he wasn't sightseeing. He traveled to Jerusalem. I think Nathan 
uh, when he preached last, talked about Jesus Christ as a boy visiting uh, the city of Jerusalem. But now Jesus Christ, at the start of his ministry, is going to Jerusalem, but he's going as an adult Jew uh, because it was necessary for every male over 12 years old to go every year to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. The Passover was the greatest of all the Old Testament festivals and the city of Jerusalem would have been overwhelmed with people. I don't think we can quite understand uh, how uh, swelled the population of Jerusalem would have been during the Passover. And the Jews would have come from all over the diaspora, all over the Roman world. And coming to uh, the temple, every family would offer a lamb as a sacrifice. They were remembering the exodus from uh, Israel under Moses and a lamb was sacrificed then and the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost and the angel of death passed over those houses. So they all came to Jerusalem and they needed to buy lambs. And they all had foreign currency because they would come from different parts of the civilized world. And like when we go on holiday... They needed to exchange their money. And so this is what happened. It started off as something small scale. It wasn't in the temple to begin with. It was in the Valley of Kidron. Uh, the Valley of Kidron is uh, between the temple and the Mount of Olives. And you've got the Garden of Gethsemane on the upper parts of the Valley of Kidron. There's actually a, um, a footpath uh, going through the valley now. Uh, I happen to jog along it, not that that's important. But they set up their stalls, first of all, in the Valley of Kidron. But over the years, it became lucrative business, as money exchange tends to be. And they probably, because Jesus is angry with them, they were probably charging interest as well. And over time, because it was so lucrative, they moved from the valley into the outer precincts of the temple. So all the Jews coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, in order to buy lambs to offer as a sacrifice, they needed to exchange their own currency into temple money. It was Tyrian coinage, I think. It had more silver in it. And they would go to these exchanges, and I think they would be ripped off, to put it bluntly. And so when Jesus, at the start of his ministry, visits the temple, he is incensed. It's in all the Gospels, the clearing of the temple, but in the other three Gospels, it's what Jesus did at the end of his ministry that's recorded. So twice he cleansed the temple. And after three years, they hadn't learned their lesson, had they? Actually, the second time Jesus does it, he's even more angry because he calls the temple a den of thieves and robbers. He doesn't do that the first time. So let's look at his response. He is incensed. Now, he's not losing his temper. We need to say that. But he is filled with a righteous anger. What is he seeing? He's seeing a religious market. They have turned 
his father's house, a house of prayer, into a place of commerce. That's what's really eating him up. Zeal for your house, Psalm 69, has consumed me. That's what the disciples remembered when they saw the anger of the Savior. You know what it is to be eaten by something. Uh, we, We tend to use it to refer to a person being eaten by hatred or being eaten by a bitter spirit. That's not what we've got here. That is sinful. What Jesus is doing here is displaying a blaze of pure, white, hot anger. This abuse of his father's house. People should be coming to the temple to meet with God to worship God, to read the scriptures, to pray to God. And instead, it's just a marketplace. And the head of the house is angry. Now, I want you this morning to understand that Jesus Christ is not mild. We all have an image, don't we, of Jesus we, we all make up a God until we are confronted with the true and the living God in the Bible. So when I was brought up attending chapel, I had a made-up Jesus. I thought of God as a kindly Father Christmas figure who was benign. And I thought of Jesus as somebody, not just meek, but mild. This Jesus would never be angry. This Jesus would never condemn people to hell. This Jesus would just accept everybody and everything. Just brushing sin under the carpets. And then I was confronted with the real Jesus. Have you been? Maybe the Jesus you've got is the other extreme maybe he's too harsh what we need is the jesus of the bible what we need is by the holy spirit to encounter jesus christ not physically as these people did but spiritually and actually those who believed in him they had a spiritual encounter with him even when he was here on earth Now, let me just open this up a bit. We use the term, don't we, hate something with perfect hatred. Do you hate things with perfect hatred? I hate committee meetings with a perfect hatred. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not offending anybody, am I? But I hate such things with a perfect hatred. Do you know what? It's possible to be angry and sin not. Have any of us been able to do that? I don't think so. Even when there's a righteousness in our anger, there's still a tinge of selfishness, isn't there? Wanting revenge. But Jesus Christ here, he's not mild. He so loves his Father. He so loves the holiness of his Father's house that he hates what is sinful and unworthy. Isn't that right? There's a wrong conception of love and hatred, I think, uh, in our generation. We tend to think love is good, hatred is wrong. Hang on. You can love sin. 
That's not love that's good. So I'm just trying to use examples here. If you love uh, somebody and somebody else says something nasty about them, you're going to be angry, aren't you? If you really love that person. So love and anger are part of a continuum. If we love the truth, we will hate lies, won't we? There's nothing wrong with that hatred. Now then, let me show you what Jesus Christ was like. Reading about Jesus in the New Testament, we see how he welcomed with open arms, how they were even drawn to him. The tax collectors, they were the scum of society. The prostitutes, the drunkards, the lepers. Jesus didn't condone their sin, but he didn't condemn them, and he transformed them. But what we find in the Gospels is an opposite reaction to those you would have expected a welcome. So the religious leaders, Jesus is often angry with. Let, let me just give you a few examples. Because we, whether we like it or not, we are religious here this morning. And our tendency is to think that sinners are out there. And to somehow think, we don't need Jesus. My friend, you need Jesus as much as the people we heard about on Wednesday nights that the street pastors are ministering to. We all need him. Now, what was striking about our reading and about other accounts to do with the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they did not think that they needed him. And that's what made Jesus angry. Their self-righteousness. Let, let me give you a few examples uh, Jesus heals a man, a paralyzed man, but it's the Sabbath. We can imagine, can't we, the Pharisees? Criti he was criticized for it. Do you know what Jesus' reaction was? He looked around at them in anger. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? What would that look have been? On another occasion, Jesus preached a sermon, and it was full of woes. And this is what he said of the Pharisees, you serpents, have you ever called a person a snake? You snakes, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Dear me, that's not mild, is it? Um, I remember being in a minister's conference and we were discussing how to be more welcoming. I'm all for that. We want to be a welcoming church. And one minister and another minister was going on to talk about how we pastors should always have a smile on our faces. Not something natural, but put on. And then one pastor got up and he said, I can well imagine John the Baptist saying with a contrived smile, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Jesus isn't losing his temper but he's real and listen my friend Jesus has a perfect hatred towards all that is sinful and he hates more than anything respectable sins that's what Jesus really is angry about and he is even angry at his church the church in Laodicea, neither hot nor cold, 
Lukewarm. Have you ever had lukewarm water? I've got one of these taps uh, where you have to, you, you know the taps? Are they called mixer taps? You, you have to move uh, the top to get cold or hot. And sometimes it's in the middle and I don't realize it. And the water's lukewarm. And I'm brushing my teeth with it. What does it make you want to do? It makes you want to puke. And that's what Jesus says of the church in Laodicea. I want to spew you out of my mouth. Heath Church, if we're lukewarm, Jesus hates it. So the disciples here, they remember the scripture from the psalm. Zeal for your house will consume me. There are other scriptures as well. Jesus is the Messiah. He's fulfilling prophecy here. Zechariah said, On that day there will no longer be a merchant in the house of God. The famous one from Malachi, sung in Handel's Oratorio Messiah, Suddenly the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple and he will purify the sons of Levi. My friends, Jesus is a lamb. He's a gentle and a meek saviour. He died for your sin and mine. But he's not just a lamb. He's a lion as well. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And sometimes the lion roars. And don't we need to hear the roar of Jesus Christ in our day? Because we have become uh, sleepy as a church. The world is completely apathetic. Oh, that the lion would roar again. That's what we need. That's what Amos prophesied about. And what about us? Uh, D.L. Moody preached a famous sermon when Christ came to Chicago. That's where Moody was a pastor. What would Jesus find if he came to Heath? Well, I'm sure we would think, well, we're all right. <laughs> we, we, we are not into entertainment, thank God. We're not into smells and bells. Thank God. We seek to do things decently and in order. Thank God. I wouldn't have it any other way. We are reverent in worship, but we don't want to be doer. We want to be joyful. Thank God. I'm not belittling any of those things. But Jesus isn't interested in the outward. He said, quoting a scripture of the religious leaders, that their lips honor me, but their hearts are far from me. So these merchants in the temple, they would have been part of the religious establishment, and they would have been honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were so far away. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He's tongue-in-cheek, but he's making a good point. Are there none here this morning who secretly bring into the house of God their hearts, their money, their lands, I don't know if you've got lands, their houses, their cattle, and a whole train of worldly affairs? Are there none here who bring their bodies only into the place of worship and allow their heart to wander to the ends of the earth? Son, daughter, give me your hearts. That's what Jesus wants. We can be right in all the outward things, but where are our hearts? 
Jesus doesn't look on the outward. He looks on the heart. And at the end of the chapter, we're told he didn't think much of the hearts of man, did he? Not only had the wine run out in the wedding. Wine signifies joy, fullness. But something had departed from God's house. Do you know what frightens me more than anything? The glory departing. Do you know what the word is for that? Ichabod. There was a pastor in New York in the 19th century, an evangelist called Ichabod. Why would you name somebody Ichabod? The glory has departed. But the irony was Ichabod Spencer was a very fruitful evangelist. God must have a sense of humor. Oh, my friends, do we desire for the glory of God to return to his people? I know I'm preaching the gospel this morning, but if there is glory filling the house of God, there is salvation visiting the house of God as well. And not just the church, but the land. Isn't it filth that has uh, overwhelmed Wales in these last few decades? When it was revival, 1904-05, the last revival, it wasn't filth, it was glory filled the land. And there were times when there were no court cases, imagine that. I don't want to read too much into this, but isn't it interesting today that a lot of churches are becoming community centers in effect. Now, there is nothing wrong with the people of God meeting in a community center and preaching the gospel and doing activities uh, to bridge But isn't it interesting that we tend to think of our buildings more in terms of community centers rather than a place of worship? Our forefathers, they called the chapels that they built Tikurth, a meeting house, not because they were meeting one another there. They were doing that. But more than that, they were meeting God there. And Jesus Christ would visit by his Spirit. That's what happens when we're converted, is it not? Jesus Christ comes to us and he opens our eyes so that we see him and we believe in him and we begin to have a relationship with him. Well, multiply that by, not infinity, but a large number and that's what happens in revival. Didn't this church know Jesus visiting a number of decades ago? It it wasn't anything special in Vernon Hyam. It wasn't anything special in this church. It was nothing to do with our resources. It was nothing to do with the people. It was nothing to do with any of those. It was God coming. There's the account, isn't there, of those Chinese Christians. God has blessed the church in China these last decades in spite of persecution. And these Chinese Christians were invited to the States. And they were shown around the churches and they were big churches and they had lots of money and lots of resources. And the Americans asked the Chinese, well then, what do you think of our church? And the Chinese said, we are amazed at how much you can do without the Holy Spirit. That's it. We don't just need to be born again in order to be saved, as 
Christians, we need God. We need this to be a house of prayer, not a house of merchandise. Not that it is, but you know what I'm talking about. In the hearts, there's a Welsh hymn. I know some of you are Welsh speakers. I'll translate this verse. But it talks about Jesus cleansing his church. And it says, Glanhad eglwys yesimawr, e grim yw bod yn lan. Cleanse your church, mighty Jesus. Her power is to be clean. Our influence isn't by hobnobbing with the great and the good. When the church does that, she loses something, as the American evangelicals have realized, alas, these last few months. Our influence doesn't come from how much money we've got. We may be blessed or not blessed in that area, but God doesn't need that. What we need is him. I used to say, give me a tin tabernacle with the presence of God any day to anything else. So Jesus cleansing the temple. I've got to hurry on to the second point, these contrasts. Jesus building the temple. This is the most important thing for us. This is what we are about. It's not us. It's not our resources. It's not our buildings. It's about Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they wanted to know what authority Jesus had to do what he had done. They didn't question what he did. They questioned his right to do what he did because it was prophesied of the Messiah that he would clean the temple. So they ask for a sign. And Jesus says something quite astounding. Verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They completely misunderstood. These men, they had so much knowledge of scripture and yet they didn't see a thing. You can have, you can have so much head knowledge and you don't understand anything about the gospel. And so they thought that Jesus was referring to the temple, and they misquoted him. When Jesus was falsely accused before Pontius Pilate, they arraigned false witnesses before the governor, and they reported Jesus as saying, I will destroy this temple. Well, that would have been an act of sacrilege, wouldn't it? Jesus destroying the building. But he didn't say that. What does he say? You destroy this temple. And he's not referring to the building. It took 46 years for Herod's temple to be built. And it wasn't finished like the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. It wasn't finished. It wasn't completed until AD 64. And it only had a few years left before the Roman army destroyed it. <laughs> Jesus is referring to his body. What's the temple? My children's talk. The temple is the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the holiest of all in the temple. Jesus Christ uses two words for the temple. One word in our English translation. In verse 14, when the word temple is used, it means all the buildings, all the precincts. When Jesus uses the word temple in verse 19, he's only referring to the sanctuary. The holiest of all, beyond the veil, the place where the Shekinah cloud of God's glory was, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the place where the sacrifices were offered, the blood sprinkled on the mercy seats, and a holy God 
turning away from sin because he has been satisfied. And what Jesus is referring to is his body. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You don't need your temple anymore because the temple has come. Jesus Christ is unique. He's the God-man. That's why we can't put anything else in our Christianity to the same level as Jesus Christ. We've been talking about baptism, haven't we, the past few weeks. It's a secondary matter. Jesus Christ is primary. We've been talking about other things, maybe. Uh, how one should dress uh, to come to church. That's not even secondary. That's not even tertiary. That's not even quaternary. I'm lost now with what words to use. It's Jesus Christ who is the be-all and the end-all. And in one sense, all that matters is, are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Now, it's interesting here. They're asking for a sign. And Jesus is saying, I'm only going to give you one sign. My death and my resurrection. That's the rebuilding of the temple. Three days. Three days. On another occasion, they asked for a sign. And Jesus says, I will only give you the sign of Jonah. Three days buried in the whale's belly, and then resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is our sign. That's the gospel. You don't need anything else. God has a sense of humor. These men are asking for a sign. They're going to bring it about. How is Jesus going to die? Jesus is going to die because they're offended at him. And they, from now on, are going to plot to kill him. Can you see how God is working? God is using even the ploys of the enemy, of Satan. And Satan thinks he is winning. Now he's going to get rid of the Messiah. But all along, he is being used of God. I find that mightily encouraging. And so when Jesus Christ hung on that cross... Do you know what was happening? This is Passover, isn't it? That's why Jesus was in the temple. Lambs were being offered, but now the Lamb of God was being offered. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus Christ was shedding his blood. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give this guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. But the blood of Jesus is different. It's divine blood. No blood, no altar now. The sacrifices are over and done with. And God the just is satisfied. God the Father, all the wrath. If you think of the anger of Jesus cleaning the temple is something to be frightened of. Think of the wrath of God which will be displayed on the day of judgment. All of that's taken on the cross for the people of God. And even though Jesus died and said, it is finished, God the Father raised him up after three days to confirm that he's accepted the sacrifice. The resurrection is living proof that Jesus Christ is all we need to come to the Father. We don't need a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest. Andy isn't a priest. Nathan isn't a priest. Jesus is our high priest. We're just pointing to 
him. No cross, no Christianity. No resurrection, no hope. That's the only sign we have the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And isn't that what God the Holy Spirit delights to set on fire? Our, we've got a logo, a new logo. And it's actually an old logo. It was the logo of our chapel when we were in the Presbyterian Church. And it's a lovely logo. It's an open Bible. And the Evangelical Movement of Wales have a cross as well, don't they? On the open Bible. Do we, do we have a cross? I think we do. And then the Spirit coming down. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is finished. The Messiah dies. Nothing more is required. The bar to heaven is removed. You don't need your temple. You don't need your sacrifices. You don't need to work, you priests. You can go home. You can go home. It's all fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're about. So not just in these Sunday services, but whatever we use our buildings for, and we're really grateful to God for all these facilities, we're here to present this wonderful person. And we want you, by the Spirit, to encounter him. Just one last thing, one last thing. Even the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Verse 22. When he had risen from the dead, three years later, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed. And they believed. They believed at this point, but they didn't have perfect knowledge. They believed in Jesus as their only hope. They believed in Jesus to take away their sin. They believed in Jesus as their Lord. Do you? And if you do, are you praying, oh, make me understand it? Not head knowledge. Help me to take it in what it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. There is nothing more cleansing than the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know what caused the chapels in Wales to become a bit like the temple in Jesus' day. The chapels became places of merchandise. And I'm not just thinking of the jumble sales they used to have. The chapels became places where respectability was raised above godliness. The chapels became places where the singing was more important than the preaching. People no longer took Bibles to church, but hymn books. Do you know what caused all of that to come in? It was the gospel, the cross, going out. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses. Three years, three years. Uh, let me, as I close, quote old Bishop Ryle again. There is a resurrection of sermons and Bible texts after many years. The good seed sometimes springs up after he who has sown it has been long dead and gone. Let preachers go on preaching. And teachers go on, if you're in Sunday school, if you teach young people, go on doing it. 
Let us sow the seed in faith and patience. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. I've come across people who've been saved in later life, and it's a verse they were taught in Sunday school that the Spirit has used to plant that seed. After decades, uh, the church in Lampeter had a number of deaths, as all the churches have had during covid and one uh, godly man who was a deacon there went to be with the Lord. And his son, his son uh, had gone far, far from the Lord. Well, after his father's death, the son came back. The son believed. He didn't think he was saved before. And in one of the recent baptism services they had, that son was baptized after his father had gone to glory. Those of you who've got children who are not saved, you don't know, you don't know what God may be doing even now. And in time, in time, let's carry on, carry on sowing the seed. And if you are not yet believing in Jesus, O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done for his name's sake. Uh, let's sing together now, tis finished. The Messiah dies, cut off for sin, but not his own. Accomplished is the sacrifice, the great redeeming work is done. 562, finito.
Father, we thank Thee. It's still a day of grace. Jesus Christ is still the Lamb. And yet, O oh God, we know that one day that door of mercy will shut and Jesus will come back not as Saviour but as Judge, as the Lion. O oh Lord, may every one of us here believe in him while it is still day. And those who are on our hearts now, O oh Lord, bring them as well into a saving encounter. And Father, for our little church, may it ever be a rescue station at the edge of hell. Lord, may we never become a place of merchandise in the wrong way, but may it be Jesus' death and resurrection. And oh, fill this house with glory, Lord. That's our longing. And now may the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.